1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to start reading in verse 12 here in just a couple of minutes. But as Paul brings this book to an end, he takes a little bit of time to talk about the church as a whole, the kinds of relationships that exist among us, the kind of work that God does inside of our lives. And so he's going to give us several critical details about the life of the church, about the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Remember that through this book, Paul expresses his love for these believers over and over again. It's one of the most personal books that we have written by Paul. It talks about how much he loved being with them, how much he hopes that they continue in their faith and their walk with God. The Thessalonians are far from perfect people. There are things that need to be fixed and changed. But Paul is also very clear that they've responded well to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we read the end of 1 Thessalonians, I want to remind us of a couple of those thoughts earlier on inside of the book. So in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 5, he says this to this group of Christians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because the gospel came to you not only in word. It's not just what we said. It wasn't just in human power, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. And I am so glad that the Word of God is having its effect in your lives. Then a couple of chapters later in 1 Thessalonians 4, the first three verses, he says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, we taught you this, we tried to live this out before you, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That thought is going to become critical to us by the end of our passage again this morning, that the will of God is our sanctification, the process of you and me becoming less and less like the sin that is in us and more and more like Jesus Christ. So as we read through the end of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to read this kind of rapid-fire description of how a church moves forward in health, in maturity, and in the power and the work of God. If there's a nutshell way of describing these last few verses, I think it is this. This is a description of a church where God is at work. Oftentimes when we get to the end of a book like this and we start reading things, and this happens often in Paul's letter, he'll, he'll say things very quickly, he'll mention this person and that person. It feels to us as if Paul is just sort of grabbing a bunch of things and putting them together and finishing his letter. We can't treat a passage of Scripture like this as if it's just sort of a side note. So many important things that happen in this passage. So much of it is this powerful description of the church of Jesus Christ. And there are things that you and I need to take away. I guarantee you there are four or five verses that we're going to read that you can memorize before you leave this morning. Can everyone say rejoice always? 
You did it. There you did. See? Pray without ceasing. Just say, pray without ceasing. There are two verses of Scripture memorized this morning. And these are the kinds of things that we hold on to as we walk with Jesus Christ and as we do it with each other. So here's a few of the things that we're going to read through this morning. First of all, Paul discusses how to treat spiritual leadership in the church. Spiritual leaders, pastors, evangelists, apostles, and so on and so forth, they have a role given to them by God that they are intended to play inside of the church. I promise you, I did not plan this for the same morning we do pastor appreciation. It's just the Holy Spirit convicting some of you. No, I'm not going to. Paul talks about the role of spiritual leadership inside of the church and how that works. Paul is also going to talk about how the church body learns how to take care of the church body, how the church learns how to deal with each other and take care of each other and encourage each other in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so it is this mutuality that we read inside of this passage of Scripture Paul's even going to outline for us a certain version of our corporate worship. How does Christian worship work? What's important to it? What components ought to be there more often than not? What should we do when we gather together as believers in Jesus Christ? And then by the time that we're done, we're going to see that Paul wraps the entire church up in the sanctifying work of God. We are being prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's God's desire that every one of us who considers ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ is growing closer and closer to Him. He wants it so much that Paul says, He will do it in us. That is powerful stuff. He wraps the entire church in the power of God. So let's begin reading 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. He says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What an incredible description of what the body of Jesus Christ, the family of God, can be like. So he begins by saying this to this young church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them. Now, while there are many in the church who play these roles of health and maturity inside of the church, there are those who are called by God to fill specific roles of spiritual leadership. 
As Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, it's very early on in the life of the church. And as his letters progress, we see certain things happening. He starts using this language to describe the spiritual leaders of the church. From pastor to apostle to evangelist to teacher, he speaks of elders and presbyters, even administrators and so forth. All of these people that God has given specific roles in the church to act as spiritual leadership. Everywhere Paul goes and starts a church or is part of encouraging a church, he leaves that church with spiritual leaders and with elders, and he'll write to them, and he'll encourage them. So he says they have this unique role to play, and he wants there to be this healthy relationship between those God has called the spiritual leaders over the church and the rest of the body of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about spiritual leadership, I want us, I think, to understand at least a couple of things. Because leadership inside of the church, pastoral leadership, spiritual leadership, however it plays out, is just different than most other forms of leadership. It's very popular inside of pastoral circles to learn leadership lessons from CEOs and NBA coaches and things like that, and there's a lot to be learned. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of wisdom in those kinds of pockets of leadership, but when we're talking about leadership inside of the church, it's just a little different, and we take our cues from Scripture, and we take our cues from God's people and God's leaders in His Word, and we take our cues from Jesus Christ. One of the phrases that we often use inside of pastoral circles to talk about how a pastor leads, what the pastor's job is, is we'll talk about pastors as shepherds, but we'll talk even more specifically about pastors as under-shepherds. You see, friends, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. There is no single pastor who is the capital S shepherd. There's no single pastors or there's no single pastoral staff. There's no individual who, is, who works as a spiritual leader who has the power to save and heal and transform. No human being has that power. It is Jesus Christ and it is Jesus Christ alone. So spiritual leaders have this role inside of the church, but they are shepherds underneath the work and the power and the guidance of Jesus Christ himself. So if the pastor is smart, if the spiritual leader is wise as they have done their job, they're learning that maybe one of the most important things that they can do is lead people to Jesus Christ, right? I don't have the power to change and transform any of your lives. God knows I have prayed for it. (laughs) And man, if I had it something, no, I'm not going to go down that path. None of us have that power. Jesus Christ has that power. So it's smart for us when we gather together, when we meet in our classes, when our leaders do their thing on Tuesday nights, that all of us are pointed toward Jesus Christ. And as we understand spiritual leaders as shepherds underneath Jesus Christ, it helps us to understand what we often call servant leadership inside of the church. We follow the example of Jesus Christ. Church leadership learns how to show the kind of love that Christ showed, the kind of grace that Christ showed to sinners and to others that culture believed were beneath them. Learn to show the kind of wisdom that Jesus Christ did. So guys, I think it's important 
that we understand that if and when some version or pocket of pastoral leadership becomes more about the individual or more about the church than about Jesus Christ, there probably needs to be some course correction there to make sure that spiritual leaders, to make sure for the health of the body of Jesus Christ that all of us are pointed toward Jesus all the time. So he says there's this role for those who work as spiritual leaders among you. And he speaks to the church and he says, I want you to have the right kind of relationship with them. This is part of how Paul describes that role. Respect those who labor among you. The word for labor there is to toil, the way you would talk about difficult manual labor. Those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. That admonish you means to grant spiritual guidance. So he says there are, uh, your spiritual leaders actually labor for you. Um, it turns out that the role of pastor is more than just one day a week. When someone learns for the very first time that I'm a senior pastor, and understand, I've worked bivocationally, where I've worked Monday through Friday, and then I've worked as a pastor on the weekend as well. I get that. But, every, but I, I still get two things. When people first learn that I am a pastor, I get two things. Guaranteed. If you're with me, it's going to happen. The first thing is usually this. You don't look like a pastor. I don't know what that means, but I always tell them I'm going to take that as a compliment. I guess. You don't look like a pastor. And the second one is, and sometimes it's half joking because they don't know what else to say, and sometimes it's serious because they've gotten to know me just a little bit, and they say, well, what do you do the rest of the week? Spiritual leaders, friends, work in a way that pours out of them, sometimes in ways that just are not visible. We may not always get calluses on our fingers and dirt under our fingernails, but it's hard work. It's the right kind of hard work. As anyone who has ever worked in church leadership for any amount of time can tell you, you pour your life into people, right? There are those, he says, who toil for you. He even says they have a certain kind of authority. God passes his authority through his spiritual leaders, his under-shepherds. And they are authority's friends, only insofar as they are appointing people to God's authority, right? That's the only kind of authority someone standing behind this pulpit can possibly wield, is to point, again, people to Jesus Christ. And then they admonish, they grant spiritual guidance. Spiritual leaders learn how to pass along and interpret the wisdom of God. Human lives stubbornly resist formulaic answers to problems, right? It would be really easy oftentimes to just be very formulaic and just sort of move people along. There are things that we need to do in life and there, there's wisdom to be passed along, but, but figuring out the admonition of the Lord and the wisdom of God in life, it just takes time and attention. And then Paul is clear in his instruction to the church itself. He said those who fill those roles and those who fill those roles wisely and well Leaders deserve the respect of the church. He says, even respect and esteem. I've been around long enough as a pastor now, and I'm just, you know, I just happen to be in a couple of roles 
where I see these kinds of things happen, and it absolutely breaks my heart. There are congregations out there who chew up and spit out good pastors, and it's wrong. And it happens for all kinds of different reasons, but oftentimes it's pride and arrogance and control. So Paul tells this church, be at peace among yourselves. I want this relationship inside of the body between those who are spiritual leaders and the rest of the church to be a relationship of peace. I want this relationship that we have with each other as we gather together to be one of peace. Guys, the church has to be a different kind of place in our world today. Instead of the kind of division that is so easy to create, the kind of division that's caused by pride, by backbiting, by slander, by gossip, by bitterness, by unresolved conflict, he says instead of all of that, that needs to be gone in the Christian's heart. Instead of all of that, I want there to be peace inside of the body of Christ. Guys, the data is in. And I mean that seriously, the polling data and the research data. Our culture is filling more and more with hatred for each other. These divisions down political lines, every poll, every ounce of statistical research is showing us that depending on whether or not you're an R and a D, it's more likely you're going to hate the other person just because they have an R or a D next to their name. Our culture is growing divided in deep and significant ways. Paul speaks followers of Jesus Christ, and he says, I want you to be at peace with each other. This has to be a different kind of place. And we're going to discover that that happens because God is going to be at work making it happen. So the church ought to be a place of peace, he says. Now, this isn't just the kind of peace where we've stopped punching each other in the face, but we still hate each other. It's not that kind of peace. This is the kind of peace that is wholeness and completeness. It is like a finely tuned machine where every part works and it places, they, they place next to each other well. They integrate with each other and when it starts to run, everything works and the machine works. It is the kind of peace where there is functionality and there is unity of purpose. I want this kind of peace to be at work inside of the body of Jesus Christ. The biblical image that Paul uses a few times with the church is that of a healthy body. He says there are parts in the body of Jesus Christ that act as hands, and we want those hands to be healthy and doing what God has called them to do. There are parts in the body that act as feet, as ears, as eyes, as mouths. And when all of those parts are doing what they're supposed to and when they're healthy, it serves the health and the use of the entire body, and it serves the health and the use of the kingdom of God. This is the kind of peace, of functionality, and of unity of purpose that Paul wants at work inside of the church. So Paul actually produces some examples amongst the Thessalonians. In verses 14 and 15, he's describing a church that is learning how to take care of each other. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another 
and then even also to everyone. A description of a church body that is learning to take care of each other. So as he talks about the role of spiritual leaders in that relationship there, we also need to understand this. Pastors and apostles and evangelists, they play their role in the church, but they don't play every role in the church. Paul never begins these conversations about how the body works by saying, well, first of all, we all know that pastors do everything. And so then everyone else just sort of fits in the nooks and crannies where there's just a little bit of extra work to be done. He never says that. All of us have this role to play for the health of the body and the work of the kingdom. So it's unhealthy when a church expects a pastor or a pastoral staff to do everything, and it's unhealthy when a pastor thinks he or she should be doing everything as well, because we're a body, we're a body. So a healthy church, the family of God, we learn that each other, we play our separate roles for the work of Jesus Christ, and we play our separate roles for the work of Christ even inside of our own lives. So a healthy church doesn't expect others to play the role that I'm supposed to play or vice versa. So he gives these examples to the Thessalonians. He says, I want you to admonish the idol. We've mentioned this, and Paul's going to come back to it again at the end of 2 Thessalonians. There were those who had decided that because Jesus is coming soon, I'm just going to quit work. They literally quit working, and they had become a burden to their families, and they had become a burden to their communities. And Paul says, that's not what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We've been given hands and feet and capacities and creativity and intelligence so that we can apply those things to this world and work for the sake of those around us. So it's a sin to not work when you can. He actually says that in 2 Thessalonians. So we admonish the idol. He says, I want you to help and encourage the weak or the brokenhearted Those who have been hurt by life or who are weak in the faith, they need the courage and endurance they get when they sit next to you inside of church. When you spend time paying attention to them, encouraging them, worshiping with them, if they're not here, writing a a note to them, calling them, whatever it is, encourage those who are walking through difficult and weak seasons in life. Lift each other up, he says. And as we endure together, that creates an incredible help for each other, for every one of us. And he says, I want you to be patient with them all. I don't know if any of you in this room know any other human beings. Maybe you do or you don't. Patience is critical. Scripture teaches me that God shows sinners patience so that they may be saved. God showed me patience so that I may become his child. I, as a follower of that kind of God, am learning how to show patience to every other sinner around me because I've received it from him, and so now I give it. Paul himself, as he tells Timothy about patience at the end of his life, he writes in 1 Timothy 1.16, "'But I received mercy for this reason.'" That in me, as the foremost, he says, I can't imagine a worse sinner than me. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm an example of the patience of Christ, and that's why I'm a child of God. So now I'm learning how to be patient with others. Then he says, just don't repay evil for evil. It is natural for us to repay evil with as much evil as we can muster. That's just inside of our broken nature. But we follow the example of Jesus Christ in this. And Paul puts it like this to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a different way of living when we follow Jesus Christ. It's a different way of relating to difficult and complicated situations when we follow Jesus Christ. We're learning to overcome those kinds of things with the good that is in God. So he's talking about how the church is learning how to encourage each other, take care of each other, admonish each other. And then he begins to talk about the kinds of things that belong inside of our worship. Our worship as individuals and our worship when we gather together as the body of Christ. So in verse 16, he says this, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So this creates this guide for worship for us individually and the way that we walk through life with Jesus Christ. He says here, rejoice always. Now remember with me that when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, it's one of the very first letters that he writes. So it's early in his missionary career. So here's this young, enthusiastic missionary who's been through a few things, but he's young, and he writes back to the Thessalonians, and he says, I want you to rejoice in everything. And we might think, oh, well, life will fix that for the Apostle Paul, right? We move to the end of Paul's life. He's in prison. He writes to the Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. A Christian isn't taking joy in everything that happens to them. We're not naive optimists, but we learn how to find our rejoicing in Jesus Christ no matter what happens. I am saved by the grace of my almighty and powerful and living Savior, Jesus Christ, and I am on my way to Him. Rejoice always. There are reasons for the Christians, for the Christian to find that even in the most difficult of circumstances. So rejoice always, he says. Then he says, pray without ceasing. What most of us imagine when he says pray without ceasing, we think of those moments when we stop everything that we do and we focus ourselves on prayer. We close our eyes. We're alone. However it is that we do, we stop everything else and we pray. And we think, well, I don't know how I can just pray always, pray without ceasing. What I believe the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do when he says this, and he's not the only one who says this, but when he says this, 
I think he's encouraging every one of us who follows Jesus Christ to create a certain kind of God consciousness in every moment of life. God is always here. God is always present. God is always active. God is always before me and above me and beneath me and beside me. He is always here. And it is possible for the follower of Jesus Christ to learn how to walk through life with those lenses. And that turns our daily existence into prayer, into conversation, into the awareness of God in His Word, in His voice, in His ways. Now, there are times when we are supposed to learn how to stop everything else and focus our attention on prayer. Then we have to go to work. Then we have to take care of the kids. Then we have to do whatever it is we have to do, but we can do it with a recognition that God is always there. Jesus himself told the disciples a parable in Luke chapter 18. And the point of the parable is so that he taught them to pray always and never give up. So we walk through this world through the lenses that God is here and we can be in prayer. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Isn't that amazing? Give thanks in all circumstances. Again, not for all things, but in all things. There are ugly and difficult and painful things that happen in life, but we again belong to Jesus Christ and will never be snatched out of His hands so we can find thanksgiving in Christ in all seasons. Again, we go to the end of Paul's life in the book of Philippians, and he tells them, I've actually learned how to be content if I have everything in this world that materially I need or if I have nothing in this world that materially I need. I am completely content in Jesus Christ. We can find this place. Friends, gratitude is powerful. Gratitude is far more powerful than victimhood or bitterness or anger. Gratitude actually makes us stronger in this life. Victimhood or bitterness actually makes me weaker and less able to deal with life. I've said it before, and I like bringing it up every time I can just because I think it's pithy. Bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die right? Gratitude does something different inside of our lives. Be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful. Learn the discipline of gratitude. Speaking to believers, believers in worship, believers paying attention to the presence of God, he says this, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Guys, this is beautiful. Our worship is done with the understanding that God really is here and He really is at work. Our worship is done with the expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to be working inside of our lives one way or another. It is beautiful to hear over time how the Holy Spirit speaks to different hearts and minds in different seasons. Whatever it is that we sing, whatever it is that comes out of the passage of Scripture that morning, the Holy Spirit does powerful and amazing things in the lives of His children. 
Don't ever quench the Spirit. Let's make sure the Holy Spirit has His way inside of our worship services. He says, don't despise prophecies. Now, we believe these kinds of gifts are still at work inside of the church, and we give room for those things to be exercised because there are times when the Spirit of God has something very specific to say to His church. So we don't find a way to bury that. We find a way to give that room and space so the Holy Spirit can speak through everything that we do. Now, the early church also believed that the role of speaking the Word of God or reading the Word of God, that was also part and parcel with how prophecy works with God's people. A lot of the way prophecy works in the Old Testament is that the prophet just reminds God's people of God's will. And we do that every time we sing these kinds of things and read the Word of God. So give it space. Give it room. Let the Word of God speak. Let the Spirit speak when and how He wants to speak to the church. So instead of burying all of that, right, we want it to be front and center. And He says in the body tests it. There are these two errors that churches can make when it comes to this kind of stuff. We, we swing the pendulum so far over here that the Word of God sometimes is only barely visible inside of the church service, or we swing the pendulum over here and we quench the Spirit. We make sure that there's no room for any of that kind of what we might think of as spontaneity, and we stop it. Or we swing the pendulum the other way and we just let it all go and we don't think about any of it or test any of it. That's not what Paul wants us to do. Give it room, don't stop it, test it. Make sure that what happens inside of the church service, planned or spontaneous, glorifies God. Does it glorify God? That's an important question to ask. Does it lift up an individual or does it lift up God? Does it accord with the Word of God? If it's the same as the kinds of things that were taught in the Word of God, then we listen to it, we receive it, we take it in. Does it encourage or guide the body of Christ? Sometimes that is encouragement. We lift up the weak and we encourage them. Sometimes it's conviction because our hearts need to be broken before God. But does it do that kind of work for the body? We test it. Then notice in verse 27, I want to put verse 27 together with these thoughts. He tells those who initially read this letter, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It turns out that the reading and the explanation of Scripture was a core part of what the early church did when they gathered together. So we continue to do that. You see, Paul has put together for us these elements of a worship service. So when you gather, I want to make sure that there's room to rejoice. I want to make sure that there's room to pray. I want to make sure that there is room for this kind of worship. I want to make sure that there's room for the reading and the understanding of the Word of God. So we stand in line with these believers for 2,000 years. It looks different now than it did then, but we're doing the same kinds of things as we follow Jesus Christ. So all of these things become important to the cycle of worship to the church today, and we cling to them, and we exercise it over and over again. Paul finishes the letter by saying this, verses 23 and 24 are the kinds of things that, you know, if you write in your Bibles, highlight these things, hold on to them. You may want to spend some time with these passages yourself. Now, may the God of peace himself 
sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. I love that. Pray for us. And he's going to say later on in Thessalonians, so that we may be bold to continue to spread the word of God. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. They would do that. We hug, we shake. He says, I can't physically be there, but I want to make sure that they know I want to. And I love them. And I want to be with them. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is the church where God is at work. It is the very will of God that his people live sanctified lives, becoming more like him, sin and brokenness on its way out of our lives in Christ-likeness on its way in. That kind of light, that kind of life, even that kind of power in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul likes to say these kinds of things to churches he writes to. He says something like this to the Colossian Christians in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him, meaning Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul says, I'm working. I'm working really hard, but it's not my power. It's the power of God at work inside of his church. So Paul's prayer, and I love the language, his prayer is that the church is completely sanctified, spirit, soul, mind, and body. And it's clear that Paul says, I want you to know this, it is God who is going to do it. He wants it done. And he is faithful to do it. And so he will complete that work himself. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Guys, the fruit of our lives can only change when God has his way within us. The fruit of our lives can only change when God has his way within us. Not when we try really hard to be different or to be better. But when we put ourselves in the way of God and we submit ourselves to God's work so that He can have His way in us. We get new fruit. We get a new way of life. We get a new way of relating. We get a new way of emoting. We get a new way of working. Only when God is able to change the kind of tree I am. Right? What inevitably comes out of a peach tree when it comes into its fruits? Peaches. Why is that? Because that's the kind of tree that it is. What kind of fruit is coming out of my life? Well, the answer to that question helps me answer, well, that's the kind of tree I am, and I don't know how much of that I like. But that fruit changes when God changes the kind of tree that I am. Notice 
how Paul puts these words together for us. One sort of given to us, admonishing us, and another in a prayer. It is the God of peace, he says, who wants to have a church that is at peace with itself. And for that to happen, it's going to take the work of God in the lives of just your average sinners who want to know Jesus. And you and I together, we need to value that goal. Every one of us needs to value that goal, right? Oftentimes when we hear things like this, we think, well, yeah, I know that other guy needs to fix the way they do stuff. Then we'll be at peace. All of us need to value this. He even says this, I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. I want us to think about how grace works for a couple of moments as we wrap up this passage of Scripture. Oftentimes when we first think about how Scripture talks about grace, we think about that moment of salvation, that we receive the forgiveness of sins, we receive unmerited favor. Paul tells us in Ephesians, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of your own works. It is by grace that you're saved. And that tends to be how we think of it, that moment of forgiveness, that unmerited favor. But think of it this way, the Thessalonians are already saved. And he says, I want you to have more and more of the grace of God. So it's not just, so to speak, that one moment where we are given grace, We're actually, as Scripture says, intended to grow in grace. To paraphrase the teacher Dallas Willard, grace is the work of God in us doing what we do not have the power to do ourselves. This is the constant work of grace. As he prays for him, he says, I want you, follower of Jesus Christ, to have more and more of that. The work of God in our lives, doing what we do not have the power of do, to do, but which we have just learned God wants done in our lives. So friends, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who belong to the family of God, who are trying to build this different place for the world to see Jesus Christ, you and I really do need to surrender our lives to Christ, sometimes over and over again. We need to be active in that surrender, and we need to be specific in that surrender. There are very specific ways in which sin and pride makes its way out of my heart that's different than the way it makes it out of your heart, right? So we need to go to Christ actively with these things and specifically with these things in our lives, So in this very short passage of Scripture, Paul has said these fascinating things, that we need to be at peace with each other. The God of peace is going to actually do the deep work of changing our lives. Everything about us. I want you to be completely sanctified, spirit, soul, and body, because Jesus Christ is coming. And yet so many of us, friends, and I include myself in this as well, We hold on to things that make that kind of peace. We make that kind of transformation impossible. And again, usually when we think about something like this, man, the church needs to be at peace. Again, we like to have that thought, you're absolutely right, the church needs to be at peace, and let me tell you what so-and-so has to do in order for this church to be at peace, right? You don't have the power to change anybody else's life. 
I don't have the power to change anybody else's life. I need to lay myself before the God of peace, to surrender actively and specifically the things in my life that need to be handed over to Him so that He can have His way in me, so that when I interact with you, when I walk into this place, I'm part of a body that is at peace. I belong to a God of peace when I walk into this place. And so we surrender. We surrender what is broken inside of us. So guys, we leave with this thought, and this is, I think, the beauty and power of what Paul says to this church, this group of people that he loves so dearly. This God of peace and of power actually wants to be at work inside of his church. He actually wants to take your body, your spirit, your mind, your soul, everything that's broken, and make it beautiful in His image. And this is the church that He builds. Let's pray.